We return to our interview with international law expert Alfredo Desaias as he explains and alludes to Chapter 2, Paragraph 4 of the UN Charter and related international law violations by NATO. In any event, there is a massive violation of Article 2, Paragraph 4 on the Western side because this article prohibits not only the use of force, it prohibits the threat of the use of force. And NATO has been threatening the national security of Russia by flooding the country with armaments and by stationing uh, all sorts of lethal offensive weapons in the Ukraine. Now, I think that Putin could have waited, and I do think that he would have gotten what he wanted. I think it would have fallen on his lap like fruit. But again, he was ill-advised and went ahead and he invaded on the 24th of February. Now, what I am concerned about is, of course, people are dying. There is bloodshed. I want to see that stopped. But you don't stop that by sending more weapons uh, into Ukraine. You stop that by good faith negotiations. And I must admit, on our side, on the West, there's zero good faith. We have a long history. We have actually a culture of cheating. We give our word and then we break it. And this is not new. I mean, this is deep in the American, shall we say, tradition. Look at all of the hundreds of treaties that were made with the First Nations of America, uh, with the Sioux and the Cree and the Cherokees, etc. All of them violated before even the ink dried. So in any event, Russia feels threatened, has an objective reason to feel threatened. And I think that Russia's case, if it had ever gone to the International Court of Justice, I think that Russia's claims would have been vindicated by the International Court of Justice. The problem is that the International Court of Justice, like everything else, is political. And the people who sit there as judges are political. Don't think for a second that the International Court of Justice is professional and objective. Don't think for a second that the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights is objective and professional. I mean, they do many good things. Mr. Desaius, it does appear to me that these UN human rights entities and mechanisms, they're fine until they do not serve the interests of these very large imperial powers that you've been talking about, right? So when exactly. you so if their position is contrary to the dominant narrative that rationalizes the foreign policy objectives of the West, they get ignored and they get dismissed as irrelevant or counter to what the United States and the West will accept. And by definition, it becomes fake news. It just seems to me that from a Russian perspective, You know, when you look at countries like in Iraq, right, Saddam Hussein gave up his weapons of mass destruction, his nuclear program, military program, that is. The same thing occurred in Libya with Gaddafi. He gave up his nuclear deterrence program. And countries like North Korea, which I don't necessarily agree with, they see that as soon as you give up these types of deterrence, then you basically are going to be regime changed or whatever. Exactly. I mean, uh, uh, I understand why North Korea 
denounced mm-hmm. the uh, non-proliferation treaty, mm-hmm. which, by the way, uh, Israel never signed, uh, neither for that matter Pakistan or India, etc. But uh, the fact is that North Korea had the right to denounce the NPT because it was threatened in its national existence. Mm-hmm. And I don't want proliferation. I want nuclear disarmament. I want disarmament for development. I want to see the sustainable development goals achieved even before 2030, which, of course, we won't achieve with all the waste. We we put our resources uh, in a trillion-dollar military budget, everything, not only what we know, also what goes into these slush funds. I remember Pentagon chief Donald Rumsfeld saying some 15 years ago that somehow $2 trillion had disappeared. So, I mean, there are those things as slush funds in which there's no accounting. You don't know what the money is being used for, but it is missing. And the fact is that uh, what we spend on weapons, we are actually stealing from education. We are stealing from healthcare. We're stealing from maintenance. That's why bridges fall into the Mississippi. That's why uh, the catastrophe of Katrina and so many other natural catastrophes that we have had, that were predicted, quite exactly predicted, and nobody did anything to prevent them. Well, I agree with what you're saying, and I think it's really important that the American public get to that understanding that we have the most incredible military budget. It it dwarfs the next 10 countries combined, and we have military bases in the seven to eight hundreds outside of the United States, where a country like Russia may have one or two outside of the former Soviet Union nations. Yet the media successfully and the State Department successfully characterized Russia as the aggressor. This is way before the invasion of the Ukraine. Russia was this terrible aggressor. And I guess returning back, and I'd like you to reflect on this, but this guy Zelensky, he seems to be someone that is more of an actor for the U.S. He's got the United States in his ear. And and when we see that he is rejecting these peace initiatives to stop this invasion process and all that, my guess is that, like you said, the involvement of U.S. intelligence in the Ukraine and in the post-coup government, including Zelensky, has convinced him to follow a unrelenting position that will continue to give Russia very poor options on how to proceed in their interests as well. And I think in defense of Zelensky's choices, it must be acknowledged that the far-right neo-Nazi influences in his country may be influencing his decision-making as well, that an option for him does not include placating Russian interests in any form or manner due to the potential threat of his own life by these far-right interests. What do you well, pre- uh, of course, everybody understands or should understand that this is a proxy war and that the United States uh, has every interest in prolonging it. The United States is actually trying to derail the peace negotiations, and Zelensky is playing the U.S. game. I mean, Zelensky makes me think, uh, for those who know a little bit of history of the Second World War, makes me think of Quisling in Norway. Quisling was the man who did uh, the Germans' business in Norway during the occupation. Now, Shalinsky is a pawn. He 
lets himself be used as a pawn and be showered with all sorts of honors. He's getting the Karlspreis in Germany and God knows how many organizations are giving him honorary doctorates and all sorts of things. So he is basking in the sun of uh, the approval of the NATO countries and of the European Union. But the fact is that he is doing a huge disservice to the people of Ukraine. I mean, he is sacrificing the people of Ukraine on the altar of NATO's geopolitical agenda. And as I've said in some of my tweets, the United States and NATO are determined to fight Russia till the last Ukrainian. Mm. I mean, we don't give a damn if Ukraine is flattened as long as we weaken Russia. And Russia did not want to be our enemy. Russia, since 1989, has been trying to be incorporated into uh, the West and has been trying to have a comprehensive security agreement for all nations in Europe. Well, NATO doesn't want that. NATO is not a defensive alliance. NATO is an offensive alliance. And NATO needs an enemy. And the only role that NATO and the United States and the United Kingdom have assigned to Russia is the role of the enemy, because only that justifies the continued existence of NATO after the Warsaw Pact was dismantled in 1991. So this is a matter, as long as we have a war, the military industrial complex is happy and applauding and laughing all the way to the back because we continue selling weapons and we continue making money. And of course, we taxpayers are financing this war as we finance the aggression against Afghanistan and the aggression against Iraq, which cost us something. It's been estimated by Harvard that it's cost us something between six and seven trillion dollars, these wars. And God knows what's going to happen now, because since the United States has been misusing the dollar and has been blackmailing the whole world with its regime change plans and its sanctions programs, the fact is that more and more countries are bailing out of the dollar as a reserve currency. Mm -hmm. And more and more, there will be deals, including deals for oil and deals for gas, that will be paid in rubles or will be paid in yuan in the Chinese currency. Mm -hmm. And this is a loss to the United States and a loss of leverage. Mm -hmm. But of course, it's understandable that countries do not trust the United States anymore and do not trust the dollar anymore if they realize that their money can be stolen at any time, can be frozen, and you cannot access your resources that may be actually in uh, the Bank of England or maybe in a bank in New York or wherever. Mm -hmm. So that will not happen anymore. People will move away from the dollar and put their reserves in a different currency. That's going to hit the United States badly. And what I see here long term is that the United States has done more than anybody else to destroy the globalization 
that had begun to bring some prosperity to countries. Globalization doesn't work anymore when you have such a vast system of sanctions and more and more people will move away from the U.S. Mr. Desaias, so I, I really appreciate what you're suggesting here, the bigger, larger geopolitical picture. And I want to remind folks who are visiting with the esteemed attorney, Alfred Desaias. He's a law professor at the Geneva School of Diplomacy and served as a UN independent expert on international order from 2012 to 2018. In your concluding comments and analysis, um, I think this is an important place to go that when you look at the geopolitical picture and you look at the suggestion since World War II that the United States came out of that World War II as a unipolar power and slowly over many decades, there has been other countries that are challenging that dominance, namely countries like China and Russia. And that may be more of the motivation uh, that's going on. Can you speak to what you perceive China's position? It seems to me that Russia has a very close diplomatic relationship it was nurturing with China before the invasion that occurred in February of this year of the Ukraine. And my guess is that part of the calculus in the invasion decision had to do with their perception of the Chinese position if they did invade. What is your analysis of this kind of geopolitical U.S.-Russia-China triage of sorts, if you will, of the West? Where do you think China falls in that? Well, China has its own interest. And uh, China is actually emerging as the preeminent economic power in the world. And it will become the preeminent military power in the world. Don't forget, they are nearly 1.5 billion human beings. And it's a very vigorous country. And it has proven over the last uh, decades to be a very reliable trade partner. Now, China has enormous investments in Africa and in Latin America and throughout Asia. So this is a fact of life. Now, we perceive that as a threat, but it is not a threat. China is not using its leverage. China just wants to be left in peace, but we seem to have nurtured this illusion that the Pax Americana is forever and that we will be the hegemon over the world forever. And we do not want to see any competition. So we don't want to let anyone climb the steps up to our level. You may remember the famous book, uh, Kicking the Ladder Away. And that is what we're trying to do, but we're not succeeding. I mean, China will come out of this crisis stronger and the United States will come out weaker. And one of the greatest geopolitical mistakes made not only by Joe Biden, but by Trump and by Obama, by George W. Bush and Bill Clinton, is to force Russia into the arms of China. I mean, by not binding Russia with our own economies, by trying to isolate Russia, by trying to cut off Russia, we leave no other option for Russia but uh, to 
increased its alliance and, and its reliance on China. And without a doubt, Russia is an immensely wealthy country when it comes to natural resources and rare earths. And China is uh, the first consumer for all of these natural uh, resources. Uh, they will take Russia's uh, gas and Russia's oil and Russia's earth. Hey, so these rare earth minerals you're talking about, these are mineral type deals that are yes. required to build. Yes. What type of minerals uh, to build uh, chips and stuff? Uh, well, lithium among others, but I mean, lithium you also have in Bolivia and you also have in Venezuela, et cetera, et cetera. And that's why these countries are also targeted uh, for regime change. Mm. I mean, uh, the regime change in Venezuela would be of very little interest if Venezuela were poor. And Venezuela didn't have anything to offer. And if they topple the government on Nicolas Maduro, that's going to be the bonanza for American investors and for transnational corporations that only have one interest to steal the natural wealth of uh, Venezuela, steal the natural wealth of Bolivia, et cetera, et cetera. That's why also the coup d'etat against Evo Morales in 2019. I mean, we are in the business of toppling governments, business of putting in our puppets, putting in uh, our uh, friendly, business-friendly puppets uh, who will do basically the bidding of the White House and of the State Department. Well, this program has done programming extensively on all of those sovereignty overthrows of nations. And not only that, it's cited and had Mark Weisbrot on and others, but it also, this program that is, has shown how the quality of life for the majority populations in all these countries, they go down the drain as soon as the United States gets the person in power they want. Because, oh, they, of course. because they usurp that sovereignty that points the country's direction towards serving the majority population and diverts it to serving the interests of very wealthy multinational investment companies from the West. And we have documented this assertion through economic metrics, such as poverty levels, access to school, nutritional levels, etc., in shows earlier this year that we gladly can make available to listeners who email this show. And that's another thing. China has opportunities, for instance, of playing the same kind of sanctions game and, say, putting an embargo on the sale uh, of rare earths uh, to the United States and to the European Union. And we depend on these uh, rare earths for modern uh, technology, for chips, for uh, computers, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I'm sorry to, to interrupt, but we are running out of time, but we'll need to continue this conversation. But I just wanted to tell our listeners that we have been visiting with the attorney, Alfred Desais. And, and Mr. Desais, if you can just share, if people want to access some of your writings, I guess Counterpunch would be a, a good location to access that. Is that correct? That's correct. Just do on the internet, Zayas Counterpunch. Uh, you will get 22 of my essays on very topical issues, mm -hmm. and you will have reference to my new book, Building a Just World Order, which is based on my 14 reports to the General Assembly and to the UN uh, Human Rights Council, in which I define 25 principles of international order. If these 25 principles of international order were respected, 
we wouldn't be in the mess we're mm. in today. We wouldn't have the tragedy we have today. But again, the United Nations Charter, as I said at the beginning, is akin to a world constitution. And we have the tragedy we have today because the US and NATO have deliberately undermined uh, the UN Charter and refused to implement decisions of the Security Council and in particular of the International Court of Justice. Yeah, well, so Mr. Desias, one more time, your book, Building a Just World Order, I think it was published just recently in 2021. Who is the publisher? Clarity Press, Atlanta, Georgia, September 2021. So the book is very fresh and the 21 principles are very, very topical. That's the book, Building a Just World Order, right? Correct. Okay. Mr. Demise, you have provided powerful insights that are not available on mainstream media. In, in just a, a minute or less, the crisis of information in the, in the United States, can you briefly talk about the information made available and not made available to the American public by our mainstream media and our government press meetings? The mainstream media will not listen to anything contrary in the New York Times or the Washington Post. And as I said, in all of my years as independent expert or as a senior lawyer with the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, I was unable to place a single op-ed in the New York Times because if you do not sing the song they yeah. want to hear, you do not sing. The last thing, Alfred, Cy Hirsch had the same problem. His tremendous writings, the great Pulitzer Prize winner, had to, pre had to present his writings on Syria in the London Book of Reviews because nobody would publish it in the United States. And he was, I know, he was I know. He was it, right it is shocking, but that is the way it is. Yeah. And uh, people Thank should you. understand it that we yeah. do not have a free press. Thank I you mean, so much. Thank you so much for your time. Very good. I'll be back. Thank you. Till the next time. Thank you for your time today. I cannot tell you how honored we, we are to have had this visit with you and we'll stay in contact. So thank you so much. Very well. We'll see you next week. Coming up next, do not go anywhere unless you're not on KOOP.org right now. Switch on over to the internet if you're on the FM dial to hear Emo Diaries with co-op's very own Stephanie at the Disco. I can't wait. And we go out as we do every week with Land of Naivety.
Pimps like I 